Well, friends, as we continue to worship the Lord together, let me now invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 25. Hebrews 12, 18 to 25. And while you're turning there, uh, let me take this opportunity to publicly thank the elders of Southside Baptist Church, and I also want to thank you, the members, uh, for your love and for your generosity that you have shown my family during our time here uh, in Abilene. We are so thankful to the Lord for you, for this church, uh, for your commitment uh, to the gospel of our Savior, to sound doctrine, and above all, your love which is the aim and the fruit of all sound doctrine, according to 1 Timothy 1.5. And this is really my prayer for you today, even as I preach this sermon, that the Lord would minister to your hearts powerfully through his word, so that you might become more Christ-like, that you would abound more in love and become zealous for holiness. In fact, This is what the writer to the Hebrews wants for his readers. You know, this letter would have been read in the midst of a congregation that was gathered for worship, just like you are this morning. And the writer says to them in Hebrews 12, verse 14, he says, strive, pursue this, all of you, be about this task, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, before I look at this text, I want to give you a little bit of a a lengthy background. After all, we are in Hebrews 12, and a lot has happened, and I want to give you that context so that you can understand why the writer says the things he does. If you read Hebrews carefully, you will learn from various portions of this book that these believers were facing tremendous hardships for the sake of their faith. At first, as new believers, they had great confidence in the gospel as they endured many trials. But as these trials kept coming one after the other, they began to grow weary. And some were even tempted to abandon the faith and go back to Judaism. And so the author to the Hebrews says, don't do that. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. If you do that, you will be destroyed If you do not continue trusting in Christ alone, you will not enter into your rest. Instead, what you need, he says, is endurance. Endurance. Keep trusting in the superiority and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and press on. The whole point of those first 10 chapters is to teach us that Jesus is is better. Jesus is better. So even when the chips are down and the world is hostile, here's what we are called to do. Look to Jesus. Run the race with endurance. Run the race that is set before us. Saving faith is enduring faith. And if we are going to endure to the end, we need one another. We need one another. This corporate language is inescapable in the book of Hebrews. 
So you see it all over the place. Let us run. Let us lay aside. Or take Hebrews 3.13 for example. Exhort one another. Or Hebrews 4.11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Listen carefully. Let us strive together so that no one may fall. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. My sanctification, my growth in holiness ought to be your business. Why? Because Christian love cares about the holiness of the other. Friends, this is how the Lord preserves his people by each one of us participating in each other's sanctification by being used as instruments of grace in each other's lives. Christian endurance is a community project. It is corporate in nature. It is a congregational activity. And so the writer says, don't neglect to gather, but encourage one another. Well, encourage one another to do what? To endure, he says, to continue in the obedience of faith. To not be hardened by sin so that you won't give in to the fleeting and temporary pleasures of the world. So that you will strive for holiness without which no one, no one here is going to see the Lord if you don't do that. If you abandon the obedience of faith in the midst of hardship, if you fail to endure, here's the shocking thing. The writer says, if you do that, you will show yourself to be just like Esau, who threw away his inheritance for a mere bowl of soup. Don't do that. Esau wanted a temporary relief for his hunger. You remember that story. But in doing so, he lost his birthright and he was rejected. See to it that no one is like Esau. But then he gives us another reason why we should not be like Esau. Why Christians ought to resist the temptation to not gather, to resist the temptation to not identify with the Lord's people, to resist the temptation not to shrink back from our Christian duties to one another. Here's why you should endure, why you should strive together. Here's the reason. The glory of new covenant corporate worship. The glory of new covenant corporate worship. In other words, you need to understand, he says, what this gathering is. You need to understand what you are doing. And most importantly, you need to understand that this is only possible because Jesus is better. Because Jesus is better. So listen carefully now to the word of God from Hebrews chapter 12, 18 to 25. Hebrews 12, 18 to 25. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask, O Lord, that you would now open our eyes and ears to see the glory of all that Christ has accomplished for us. We pray that we would rejoice greatly in the profound privilege that we have been given to gather as a body, to see it as a blood-bought privilege that the world has no rule or authority over. Speak to our hearts, O Lord, as we draw near to you. Fill us with your spirit that we may be consumed by a zeal to trust and obey you, even if the whole world may rise up against us. Equip us with everything good that we may do your will through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, if you were to do a casual survey, a casual survey of what Christians in America perhaps even evangelical Christians, if you were to do a survey of what they thought was the nature and the purpose of the local church, I doubt that many would see the regular weekly gathering of the saints for corporate worship as that which is essential for their Christian witness. Essential for their Christian witness and even for their own sanctification. I doubt they would think that. But friends, the church is God's idea. God's idea. Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or as that old hymn puts it, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. See, the word church is not simply plural for Christians. It is a peculiar assembly. It's a gathering in the name of Jesus where his word is read and preached and prayed and sung and seen in the ordinance that he instituted. If a church never physically gathers, it's not a church. The local church is a flesh and blood assembly of covenanted disciples whose visible witness in the world is designed by God to showcase his wisdom and his glory. You see that in Ephesians 3.10. The physical gathering of the saints in corporate worship it's, is not an optional activity. No, it is the goal of our redemption. We have been redeemed, set free, 
set free from the power of sin and death so that we might worship and serve our triune God together. We are members of the body of Christ, raised to new life, united to him so that we might worship him together. This is what Christ has commissioned us to do. The local church is not a religious club. No, it is an authorized body of ambassadors, men and women who are citizens of a heavenly country, called to proclaim his word in a perishing world and to love one another so that the world may see and hear our visible witness. Southside Baptist Church, you are a city on a hill, not a lamp to be put under an online basket. You see, when a local church neglects to gather, we abandon our post. I want you to think about that. Seeing the corporate worship of the saints as optional not only affects our witness in the world, Think about it. You are to be the light of the world. And if you are to be the light of the world and you don't gather, then you do the perishing world a great disservice. Not only does it affect your witness, according to the writer to the Hebrews, it also affects your endurance. It affects your endurance. You see, hardships and trials were forcing these believers to rethink the corporate worship gathering. And the writer says, you're not going to get very far without it. How else are you going to exhort one another? How else are you going to stir one another to love and good works? How else are you going to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Friends, don't you see? The primary way, the primary way that our endurance is built up is when the Lord ministers to our hearts in corporate worship as we sit under the preaching of his word, as we sit in his presence and are transformed by his grace. Transformed by his grace to strengthen one another and to run the race that he has set before us. When the church gathers in corporate worship, we ought to be reminded of the glory of his kingdom that Christ has inaugurated in his blood. The glory of new covenant worship, dear friends, is a precious means of grace that the Lord has given his people to, in order to endure to the end. And the more we grasp and realize the beauty and the privilege of the corporate worship gathering, the more our faith will be strengthened to do what Jesus has called us to do. So why strive for holiness together? Look at the text with me. Look at verses 18 to 21. For, here's the reason. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
See, as the writer addresses this congregation of believers, he compares their gathering to another gathering. He compares their gathering to the assembly of the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And he reminds them of the time when the Lord made a covenant with Israel and gave them the law. And what he highlights about that gathering was how frightful it was just to be there. If you remember, Sinai was where Israel got to meet their Redeemer. This is recorded for us in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. You remember the story, the Lord descended upon the mountain in a theophany. It was a visible appearance of God, but in a veiled way, he appeared in a dark cloud and there was smoke and fire and thunder and, and lightning. The entire mountain shook like a chimney. And all Israel got to witness the, the terrifying display of God's majestic holiness. And God showed up in this way because he wanted his people to fear him and not sin. Yeah, but that appearance was not the only thing that was frightening. His voice, his holy voice was unbearable to sinful human ears. It was so unbearable that the people thought that they would die. And they cried out, for a mediator. Here's a good verse to show your charismatic friends who say, I wish God would speak to me directly. You don't want that. <laughs> Exodus 20, verse 19. They said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. See, the Lord's descent on the mountain made the entire mountain holy space. It was a physical holy space. That's what he means by this phrase, you have not come to what may be touched. It was a touchable mountain. But because of the Lord's holy presence, it couldn't be touched. It was lethal to sinful human hands. And so an order was given that whoever would touch the mountain, even the edge of it, man or beast, would be put to death. The entire mountain had been changed into a consecrated sanctuary that was off limits to sinners. Friends, Sinai makes it clear to us, crystal clear to us, that sinners cannot draw near to a holy God. If you do, you will perish. And the very mention of this incident would have reminded the hearers, and it ought to remind us, that under the old covenant, the Lord was not accessible. You couldn't draw near to him in worship. Later on, when the tabernacle was built, only the high priest could enter into the Lord's special presence. And that too, only once a year, after offering a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the nation. The old covenant was insufficient to deal with our sin problem. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Even God's, Israel's God-appointed mediator, Moses, as great as he was, was a sinner shaking in his boots. Shaking at the sight of a holy God. But the writer says, listen, listen, you weary Christians. Listen, you have not come to Mount Sinai in worship. This is not that kind of gathering. 
Look at verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, this is amazing. This is amazing. And I'll tell you why. Up to this point, the author has been telling these Christians to keep living by faith in the midst of trials, just like that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11. Keep running. Trust in the future promises. Look forward to that heavenly city whose designer and builder is God. Look forward like pilgrims to that heavenly country. You know, the heavenly country which was, which was what the promised land of Canaan foreshadowed. And this was true even of Zion and the earthly Jerusalem. It pointed forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Under the old covenant, people used to face Jerusalem and the temple and pray. Listen to how the psalmist describes Zion and, and Jerusalem. Psalm 48, verses 1 to 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. It's the city of the living God. But friends, we know that the earthly Jerusalem and Zion was a type of the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul talks about this in Galatians 4 verses 25 to 26. He says, Christians are not children of the earthly Jerusalem. We are not under the law. We are not under slavery. No, we belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above she is our mother. Those who are in Christ are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. And all this while he's been saying, look forward. Wait for the city to come. Wait for the city to come. But here in this text, we are not told to look forward to the day when we will enter into our final blessing. No, he says, look at the text. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now what does he mean by this and how does this help us endure? Well let me tell you what it means as we walk through the text. And as we walk through this text I want to point out seven truths, seven unshakable truths about corporate worship that can help your endurance. Number one, number one, we come to Mount Zion. We come to the heavenly Jerusalem. When we gather in corporate worship, we come to a special place. We come to a special place. And by that, I mean when we gather in the name of Jesus, when his word is read and preached and prayed and sung and seen in the ordinances, when we do that, we come, we draw near to God in a very special way. We come by faith 
to this heavenly reality that we long to enter into permanently. Isn't that remarkable? The Spirit lifts our hearts up to heaven, as it were, so that we might uniquely experience the presence of God. We come to the unseen by faith. Brothers and sisters, this means that corporate worship is a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of heaven. We get to experience a little something of our eternal home. You know, after a long day at the office, it's, it's common to hear people say, Oh, I've had enough. I just want to go home. And that's, what, that's what you say when you feel weary, isn't it? Well, brothers and sisters, when you are struggling with hardships, when your hands are drooping and your knees are weak, when it's so hard, when you feel, when you feel it, the, the hardship of being a disciple in a hostile world, you know what you should do? Come home. Attend the gathering. Come home to corporate worship. Come home to the worship of the saints and experience a little bit of heaven on earth. If you're struggling to walk in the obedience of faith and you are weary, there's no better place to be than with the community of God's blood-bought people sitting under the preaching of his word and worshiping him together. Come to the place where you can hear the gospel preached, where you can stir up one another to love and good works. As you sing to one another, be encouraged in the Lord. You have need of endurance. Let the unique presence of the Lord in gathered worship comfort and strengthen you. If you don't like corporate worship, you are not going to like the new heavens and the new earth. And if you're not longing for your eternal home, you won't long to gather with the saints. Beloved, right now, listen to me, right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through faith, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. The Lord is in our midst. He's in our midst to be glorified among his saints. What he's describing here, listen carefully, what he's describing here doesn't happen on Zoom. It doesn't happen online because whatever you do online is not a gathering. I hope you can see the profound poverty of an online church. It's not a gathering. When you get on Zoom, you are looking at digital images of people in different geographic locations giving you the illusion of togetherness. You're not together. A disembodied church is not a church. Don't let the blood-bought, Christ-purchased, embodied, new covenant worship of the saints become disembodied and subhuman. Don't let that happen. Don't get me wrong. I am grateful for technology. My simple declaration this morning is what Jesus has accomplished 
is better. Is better. Number two, here's how corporate worship helps us endure. Here's the truth that we can learn about corporate worship. We come to a place of great joy. We come to a place of great joy. The text says you have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. This is not a gathering where we experience the darkness and the gloom and the terror of judgment, but of great joy and confidence in the Lord. That phrase, festal gathering, is used to describe Israel's feasts in the Old Testament. Friends, these were times of great celebration and this is what the writer is describing. There is a great rejoicing that is going on in the heavenly Jerusalem among myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. When we come together in worship, we get swept up into that joyous celebration and we rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We praise the Lamb who was slain for sinners. These are things that angels long to look into, says Peter. Joy is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in the size of the congregation. It is found in our Savior. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. See, as we come together in worship, we are strengthened with power for endurance and patience with joy. With joy. That's what Paul tells us in Colossians 1.11. We are strengthened as we hear the gospel and we are filled with joy. Filled with the deep-seated confidence that no matter what our struggles may be, this world, with its hardships, is passing away. There is a joy that is set before us, a joy that we will enter into and a joy that we get to experience every week when we gather in worship. And friends, this happens not just through the preaching, but also through the singing. As you sing words of grace, you are ministering truths to the hearts of your brothers and sisters. It is a ministry that the Lord has commanded. So sing your heart out. Your joy depends on it. And the joy of your brothers and sisters depends on it. One of the things I'm grateful for at Southside is how scripture saturated the songs are. What better be scripture saturated if we're going to endure. I don't want some wishy-washy truth sung about a hundred times repeated a hundred times that's that's not going to do anything for me I need to hear truth I need to hear God speaking to me and it needs to come from you brothers and sisters so sing your heart out encourage one another in song look at each other when you sing you're singing to God and you're singing to one another You are proclaiming the word of Christ to one another. This is your ministry. Men, model that. Fathers, husbands, model that. Your kids can see you when you're excited, when you're watching the game. Are you excited of what Jesus has accomplished? You excited about New Covenant worship? 
Number three, we come to a place where we experience God's love. Look at verse 23. The text says, you have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now we know that Christ is the firstborn. We see that in Hebrews 1, 6. He is the obedient son. He is the beloved son. He is the appointed heir of all things. The one who receives the inheritance. But here we see many. It's a whole assembly, a church. These are people, we are told, whose names are enrolled or written in heaven. Friends, this is a way of describing God's electing love towards his children. Think of what Ephesians 1, 4-5 says. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Friends, those who are in Jesus Christ, who are united to him by his spirit through faith, receive all the benefits of the firstborn. In him, the church is the firstborn. If we are children saved by grace through faith, then we are fellow heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is your identity in him. You are fundamentally not black or white or brown. You belong to Christ and you belong to that great assembly, the assembly of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven. When we gather together in corporate worship, we join with the invisible church. We enter into a spiritual fellowship with all those who are in Christ, with all those in every place who are fighting the good fight of faith to endure. You know, he says more about that in that phrase where he describes believers as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Both these phrases explain the invisible church. Isn't that amazing? We come into communion with everyone in the body of Christ, not just with other members of Southside, but also with other gospel-believing assemblies who gather together in worship. Brothers and sisters, marvel at God's design. This is his design for spiritual communion. Glory in the new covenant. When we gather in corporate worship, we are reminded of our true identity. We are reminded that our true family is the Christian family. The community with whom we will dwell before God for all eternity. We are reminded that we belong to our Savior. That we are beloved. We are reminded that God has not destined us for wrath but for salvation. And we are encouraged by his love to endure. Number four, we come to God himself. Isn't that the goal of the gospel? And our highest aim in worship? You know, at Sinai and under the old covenant, people could not draw near to God, but in Christ we can. It is to God, the judge of all him, all the earth that we come and we come not in fear or terror but we come knowing that our sins have been paid that they have been washed away and in Christ that we have been brought near the law could not do that but through Jesus our great high priest we now have access to God we now have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
You don't have to come quivering before God, worried that a bolt of lightning might strike you. But you can come boldly as sons and daughters to a father. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown as Christ my own. We can come before God. We can come before his throne of grace to receive mercy, to find grace to help in time of need. We can come before God the judge and have assurance that one day we will be vindicated. We will not enter into his judgment. And he will right every wrong, beloved. He will wipe away every tear, every injustice. Remember who the judge of all is. And remember who he is to you now because of what Christ has done. Let that truth fuel your endurance. Run the race with endurance. Number five, we enter into a profound and wonderful fellowship. Look at the text. The text says we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You know, this refers to the spirits of believers, believers through all time who are in the Lord's presence even now. And while we will be gathered together with them in the new Jerusalem eventually, the text says there is a spiritual communion that we enter into with these saints when we gather for corporate worship. Think about that. You know, when he says they are perfect, They're not perfect in the sense that they have already been resurrected. No, that will happen only when Jesus returns. Hebrews 11.40 tells us that without us, they will not be perfected. But they are made perfect in the same way that Paul can speak of all believers being already glorified in Romans 8.30. And so from God's standpoint, Christ's priestly work guarantees this. Imagine that when you come Together in corporate worship, we commune with Abraham and David and Paul and the apostles and the prophets and the martyrs of old along with every Christian who has died. There is a profound and mysterious communion that happens when the saints gather together in worship. You don't get that in your small groups. What's the nature of this communion? Well, the Bible doesn't say much about it. It's a mystery. But I think there's a hymn that captures what's going on really well. It's the same hymn that I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, The Church's One Foundation. There is a line that explains this. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, in love may dwell with thee. You see, we are reminded of those before us, those who have entered into their reward, and this will cause us, this ought to cause us to endure to the very end, to do the will of Christ and enter into ours. 
You know, Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 is set up in this way. You have this great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 telling us what? Run! They're cheering us on. Run! Number six, we come to our great high priest. You know, the text says we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. As we gather together in corporate worship, we are reminded right from the call to worship that we are to respond to every redemptive provision that God has made for us in Christ Jesus. We are to respond in faith, we are to respond in hope, and we are to respond in love. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament sacrifices by becoming the ultimate sacrifice And he has opened the way into the presence of a holy God. No one can come to the Father except through me, says Jesus. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the center of all corporate worship. Did you get that? This is why Christ is the center and should be the center of all corporate worship. See, God has established with us a new covenant through Jesus' death and resurrection. He has fulfilled in himself the law and the prophets. He has written the law upon our hearts. He has given us his spirit. We are now the body of Christ. We are united to him. We are gathered before him where he sits enthroned in heaven. He is our heavenly high priest. And when we come together in corporate worship, we are reminded that he prays for us. That's why we endure. Friends, Jesus prays for us. Your heavenly high priest prays for you. I don't know what your troubles are this morning. But Jesus Christ, your heavenly high priest, is praying for you by name. You need to hear that. He is the one who prays. He is the one who intercedes so that we can endure and we look to him. We look to him. Number seven, we come to a place of cleansing. The text says we come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know, that story in Genesis tells us how Abel offered a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. And though he died... Hebrews 11 testifies to his faith. What Jesus offered in the sacrifice of himself was far superior to Abel's because his blood sprinkles us clean. Hebrews 10.22 says, through Jesus' sacrifice, our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Abel's blood cried out from the ground for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness. In him, we have redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. Friend, if you are not a Christian, the good news of Jesus Christ is not that you will have a better life in this world or that he will make all your troubles go away. It's not that he will give you a better job or if you're a student, it's not that he'll help you pass all your exams. No, the good news is that he saves you from your sins. He saves you from your rebellion. Our sins have separated us from God and because God is holy, we stand under his condemnation. 
But God in his mercy sends his only son to save us. The son of God who is truly God takes on human flesh. He becomes like us in order to become our representative. And he perfectly obeys God's law on our behalf and he goes to the cross and he dies as an atoning sacrifice, taking our sins on himself so that anyone who repents of their sins and puts their trust in him can be forgiven of their sins, can be cleansed, can be reconciled to God. If you're not a Christian and you're here, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your heart like those Israelites did even after hearing God's voice at Sinai. Do you know what happened to that generation, don't you? They perished in their unbelief. Don't harden your hearts. Or don't even think that you can do this later. You may not have another chance like Esau. No, put your trust in Jesus and he will give you eternal life. Come to him and you will enjoy all these blessings of the new covenant that I've been talking about. Put your trust in him and every Sunday, every worship gathering will be a joy and a delight. Something that you will look forward to every day. Come to Jesus. You know, in this gathering we come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And here's why this is important. It's important for our endurance, for our healing, for our peace, for our striving in holiness. Because his blood speaks a better word. We don't have to hide our sins. We don't have to hide our struggles. We can confess our sins to him and to one another. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1.9. Now friends, if this is what we have come to, then corporate worship is not optional. It is necessary for our endurance. This is why when someone fails to attend, and I'm not talking about the time when someone is sick or they're traveling, but if they intentionally don't attend, it is very possible that they may be in sin already or most likely to fall into sin because they're not putting themselves under the means of grace that God himself has given us. Whatever spiritual problem this person may be suffering from is only going to get worse. Our tendency is to run away from the gathering when we've got something going on. Jesus says, come. Come home. This is my design for you. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but I hope that you notice the emphasis of the word in this passage. Just look at that text. Scan your eyes over the text. God's voice. His word was frightening. They could not endure his word. They could not endure the order. In new covenant worship, we hear a better word. And that just tells you the importance of the word in our corporate worship, doesn't it? The Lord comes to us, he ministers to our hearts through the ministry of his word. Why should we persevere in the obedience of faith even in the midst of hardship? Because look at what Jesus has done. Look at the glory of new covenant worship. 
that only he has enabled. Look at the kingdom that has been inaugurated by the incarnate word of God. And if you say, yes, I see that, what do I do now? Well, look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is, if the people of Israel... If they were judged by the law, if they were destroyed by the curses of the old covenant, think about that. Think about the power of God's word. Then much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Do you know who he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as you come together in corporate worship, as you are lifted up in the spirit to communion with the triune God of heaven, when you hear the reading of the word, when you hear it in the preaching, when you hear it in the gathered assembly, you are hearing the voice of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus who is speaking to you from heaven. Imagine that. Don't walk away from here without settling it in your hearts that you will persevere in the faith, that you will strive to obey him together. If you disobey his voice now, and here's what I think he has in mind as he says that, he has all those commands in, in the letter to gather, to exhort one another, to pursue loving one another, to fighting sin together. If you neglect everything he has said to you as a member of his body, then later you will hear a more frightening voice. Don't be just hearers, but doers of his word. Pay attention to his spirit-inspired written word. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. By his son. His full and final word is his son. His word is all we need for life and godliness. So as we draw near to our triune God, let's be joyous, but let's also be in awe of him and strive together for the holiness without which no one will see him. He set a race before us and he has called us to live by faith, to endure to the very end. It is with thankful hearts that we ought to worship and serve him, even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of suffering, and even in the midst of trials. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would empower your people by your spirit for the obedience of faith. Preserve your church, O Lord. Hold fast to us as we strive together. May your will be done and your kingdom come. Teach us to rejoice in trials as we serve you and serve one another with grateful hearts. Do this for your glory and for our endurance with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.